Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Rick Ridgway. Rick is an outdoor adventurer, writer, and advocate for sustainability and conservation initiatives. For 15 years, he was the VP of Environmental Affairs and then VP of Public Engagement at Patagonia. During his tenure, he's worked with teams to develop and launch environmental and sustainability initiatives, including Freedom to Roam, the Footprint Chronicles, the Responsible Economy Campaign, and Worn Wear. He was also founding chairman of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, developer of the HIG Index, and today the largest apparel footwear and home textile trade organization in the world. In addition, he's recognized as one of the world's foremost mountaineers. With three companions, he was the first American to summit K2, and he has done other significant climbs and explorations on all continents. He has written seven books, many magazine stories, and produced and directed dozens of television shows. National Geographic honored him with its Lifetime Achievement and Adventure Award. In corporate sustainability, he is emeritus board member of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition and on the board of its for-profit arm, Higco. In conservation, he serves on the boards of Tomskins Conservation, the Turtle Conservancy, One Earth, and the Kiewit Family Foundation. His latest book is Life Lived Wild, Adventures at the Edge of the Map. And it's a real pleasure and honor for me to have Rick on the show. Welcome to The Deep Dive. How are you? Well, I'm great, Philip, and I hope you are too. And it is uh, my pleasure to be with you today as well. You know, I've everyone who listens to the show knows I'm in a weird place when it comes to things like this because I am the quintessential city kid. So I, I'm born and bred in, in Brooklyn. I've lived in New York for most of my life outside of school and other things like that. But I'm also a huge fan of Patagonia as a company and what they stand for. And I am getting more and more engaged with the outdoors as a as a city person. I spent a lot of time in California this summer, going to a couple of national parks. Nothing on the scale of, of what of what you've done, merely walking and observing and, and all that good stuff. But, you know, as I read through your book, and as I mentioned, I got an opportunity to hear you speak maybe about a month to six weeks ago. You know, the, the title, the full title is called Life Lived Wild. And as I read the book, despite the title, there's actually so much care and attention to detail that goes into your work as a professional, your focus as a as outdoorsman, as a premier mountaineer. So I, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of explain the title when the life lived is actually so much with so much care and love involved in it. Well, I tell the reader I've spent over five years of my life in tents, living in tents, and those tents in the main, have been in the most wild and remote places on the planet. So I have lived a lot of my life in the wild, and I have learned over my life lessons in the wild that I've brought home from the high mountains to my life at sea level that have really helped guide the way I've lived my life, the way what my 
most foundational values are that have guided me. That experience, those lessons is what I hope I brought to the reader who might be interested in reading this book. It is about life lived wild in those wild places. But what I've really tried to do is share indirectly, I might add, some of the things I've, I've learned in those wild places that I think anybody reading the book might also be interested in thinking about and applying to their own lives, even if their lives are, for the most part, like yours, Philip, lived in cities like New York, that there's so much in nature, in wildness, that can help inform all of us, no matter who we are and where we come from, that I think will make all of us better people. Absolutely. And it's funny that you mentioned the the learning at high altitude and then taking it down to sea level, because when I was out at Sustainable Brands, as you know, we were talking about a little bit before we started recording, and I got to hear your presentation on the first day of, of the session's opening. I, you know, I hadn't read the book at that point, but I jotted down that statement in, in my own notes at that moment, that learning at high altitude. And I want to give you an opportunity to really go into more detail as to, you know, why that is, is so central to the way you've lived your life and it, and it factors so much into the stories that are that are crafted throughout the book. Well, perhaps I could answer that with story. <laughs> Let me tell a story of one of the experiences that I relate in the book that had a profound impact on me. And it was a trip I was on in 1980 when I was invited to join some other of my closest friends to travel to the People's Republic of China in the first year that China really opened its doors to outside mountaineers. And we had an opportunity to attempt to climb a mountain in the eastern margin of the Tibetan plateau called Minyakonka, a place uh, so remote that no outsider had been to that area since the early 1930s. So for 50 years, the place had been literally off the map to the outside world. And an opportunity to go to such a remote place seemed a reason alone for the expedition, the adventure, never mind the attempt on the mountain. And as I said, I was with some of my closest friends and three others of those friends and I one day coming down from having positioned our tents at the 20,000 foot level on the side of this mountain triggered an avalanche and roped together. We were swept down the side of the peak over 1,500 vertical feet. That took probably a full minute, 60 long, long seconds, when for every one of those seconds, I assumed I was dead. I didn't think there was any way to get out of that alive. But then the avalanche slowed and stopped. And I was still alive, even though I was injured. And I soon discovered that of the four of us, I was the least injured and I had to attend to my companions who were worse than me. One of my closest friends, Jonathan Wright, while I was holding him in my arms, died in my arms after I tried to keep him alive for a half hour. And we buried him on the side of the mountain and, and went home. And I went into a deep introspection trying to decide whether the rewards that I had won from my life to that point as a mountaineer was worth the risks that were now so palpably real, risks that included the, the death of one of my closest friends in my arms and those long seconds when I myself thought I was, I was dead. And that introspection 
of whether I wanted to continue on that path or not really required me to think deeply about what life means for any of us. And it took two years of thinking it through. But in that time, I was continuing my career as a a writer, mostly, also a photographer and filmmaker. And I was on a project in the Himalayas, a project that I had started with my friend Jonathan, who had died in my arms. And I had vowed to his family and and his wife, one-year-old daughter he had left behind to complete the article for them. So I was in Kathmandu in a hotel lobby, and I saw this beautiful young woman sitting by herself, and I bought her a drink and took her out to dinner that night. Well, several weeks later, she got a hold of me, and we continued to date. And soon after that, I, I proposed to her. She became my life mate. We married. And the reason we connected was because she had had an experience very similar to mine in that avalanche. And like you, Philip, she was from New York. She lived in the big city. She was a a fashion model. She worked for Calvin Klein. And on the surface, we had nothing in common. But she had been previously married to a very wealthy Mexican who was a sportsman like me, an outdoor sportsman. And he loved sailing. He loved adventure sailing. And she used to accompany him on some of his trips. And off the coast of New Guinea, unbeknownst to them, there was a heavy, a giant earthquake that triggered a tidal wave, and they got caught in it. And there were 13 of them on the boat, and only two, including my wife, survived as the boat broke to pieces. And the one other who survived was not her husband. She lost her unborn baby. Her life was pulled out from under her completely, and that happened within months of my experience in the avalanche. So our relationship was built on our twin experiences of being in the outdoors, being in nature, being in wildness, and all of a sudden having to confront the death of the ones we loved and the death, the near death of ourselves. And we had both gone through the same introspection, trying to decide whether, how to move forward. And that was what bonded us together. We developed a shorthand between us where we used to call things that were really important in our lives matters of consequence and things that we could just let go and laugh off or brush off as matters of inconsequence. And I go deep in this book exploring with the reader how we did that and why we did it and where it came from. And at the headwaters of our values was this deep abiding respect for wilderness and wildness, for wildlife, for understanding and getting into our bones the way the wild part of the world worked. And then from those experiences, being able to use those experiences to guide us in judging what in our own lives was really important and what wasn't. So that's a long story uh, of an explanation or a story that that I hope answers in part what your question is, uh, because it does illustrate one of one of the ways that that my time in wildness and, and why the book's called Life Lived Wild, one of the ways I I brought those lessons uh, back home and uh, and lived by them. Absolutely, and and you you touched on on quite a few things that I have sketched out in the notes. So we're going to be going back specifically to the matters of consequence. And we're going to be talking 
a little bit more of, about that climb that resulted in your friend Jonathan Wright's death. Because one of the things that struck me beyond the, you know, just the impact of hearing that story and, and having read it in the book, you spend uh, some considerable time talking about that, is the presence of the grief that is is palpable as you read through it. And, you know, oftentimes for myself as a reader, we hear these accounts and we're like, okay, well, it just took time to get through this, right? Like you mentioned, even in your in your story, it was two years before you were out in climbing again. But in reality, there's a lot more that's going on as you're dealing with the loss and the grief of that. And I wanted to spend some time in you know, kind of thinking through that a little bit more because it is a catalyst for the way in which you you viewed everything from a before and then after moment, you know? So how was it going through that grief and loss process? As you know, from reading the book, uh, at the end of the book, and uh, spoiler alert, uh, you know, Jennifer, my wife of um, 40 years, uh, dies of cancer. And uh, there are other experiences in the book where close friends die. Another one very similar to the, the death of my friend Jonathan, when uh, another close friend and outdoor adventurer who I had many, many experiences with, Doug Tompkins, we were in a, in a kayak accident together in a double boat. And uh, again, I thought I was going to die, and I didn't, but he did. So in all those experiences, Philip, I have come away doubling down on what Jonathan had taught me so many years before in my youth. Jonathan was a, a very a practicing Buddhist. He spent a lot of time in the Himalayas, and he passed some of his own learnings on to me. And I think foremost of them was how he had learned to live his life truly in the moment as fully as he could without looking into the past or being preoccupied with the future. And he did that by getting into his bones, the deep understanding that death is the mere reflection of life, that without death, we don't have life, that life on earth is designed by death. That's how life evolves. And he started me thinking deeply about that. And he helped me before he died to begin to integrate it into the way I thought about what life means for me or for anybody. And then with all these experiences of confronting death in my life, it is only reinforced with each experience that understanding of how important it is for all of us to understand and confront and accept into our lives the fact that all life is going to end in death. Now that sounds like a platitude. It's everybody knows that's gonna happen. But how few among us really deeply, deeply understand that into the point that it begins to inform every day that we have, that we are alive. On some level, if you think about life being framed from the very first breath we take by our ultimate death, you could even say it's absurd. But yet within that absurdity, the real wisdom is finding your way forward between those two moments of birth and death to find as much engagement in the world on a daily basis as you can bring from it 
and learn how from that engagement to find deep, meaningful joy. So I hope in my own example, I've really tried to learn that the wisdom of what I just said, to live by it. I'm 72 years old now. I still think I've got quite a ways to go, but you know, I feel like I'm getting there. <laughs> and it's been just a little over two years since my beloved Jennifer died. And even in the days immediately following her death, I was still able to find joy in my own life, in my own path forward. And one of the ways I did that was to directly confront her death. And I've done that with the deaths of my other friends. Not so much in my youth, but in my older age, I've learned to do that. That instead of turning back from the death of those we love, instead of what in our own lexicon we commonly called finding closure, which I don't believe in at all, that instead of finding closure, instead of trying to shut out of our lives the pain of the loss of the lives of those we love most, we need to do the opposite. We need to, to confront that pain and embrace it and integrate it because we know in advance it's always going to be there. It may go away a little bit. You may live your life uh, without thinking every day about your own death, but, but actually accommodating the fact that we're all going to die into our daily lives is one of the great secrets of how best to live life. And trying to find closure from the loss of those we love is the opposite of what we should be trying to do in those circumstances. It's interesting because many, many people, and I'm, I'm going to generalize a little bit here, but I think in an American construct, maybe even a Western construct, talking about death or loss or grief are things that are often best done alone, right? Like people will reinforce this idea that, you know, you grieve alone, you handle these things alone. And one of the things that keeps coming back to when I read the book and went through the book is that it's such a meditation on deep friendship. It's a meditation on the power of community to build experiences and to have not just the big adventure of climbing a mountain, but the smaller adventures of, of true kinship and building things together. And it comes through so often as, as you go through the book. So it seems like you've learned or exemplified a different way of dealing with these things that is very opposite to the way in which our society would, would prefer us to deal with them. Have you found that to be a challenge in your life as you're kind of explaining these things? Or is it something that you have just found that you've been able to incorporate and make work for you, regardless of the conventional knowledge around things like closure and, and other issues? Well, Phil, first, <laughs> I wish you had read the book before it was published, because what you just said would be any writer's dream of what a dust jacket blurb would say. <laughs> 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 I really appreciate those comments. And I appreciate them because uh, you have just summarized some of the things I was hoping a reader might pull out of the book. And, and, and especially a reader who wasn't necessarily somebody already in this arena of outdoor sports. Uh, and having somebody like yourself who has grown up, in, as you said in the introduction, in, in, in New York, you're an urbanite, to be able to, to see and comment on, like you just did, some of the things I was trying to 
to bring the reader along with is, well, uh, it makes all the work writing a book like this uh, very fulfilling. So thank you so much <laughs> for that comment. And to answer your question, it's been a long process to try to achieve some of the understandings that I just shared with you and your listeners a few minutes ago. You know, about uh, in the case of what I was just explaining, how best to to live your life by understanding that your life is going to end. You know, what the Catholic tradition uh, through the ages called momento mori, uh, it's a Latin phrase that, re- that means remember your death, where you consciously link death to your life every day. But that's a lesson that didn't come in any epiphanous moment, even after nearly dying uh, for the first time with Jonathan's death on that side of that mountain in China. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, it took two and three years of reflection whether to even go back to mountaineering. And it took much longer to go to continue the process of, of integrating into my daily life some of the things that I just uh, explained to you. And even now, as I said, I I'm not there yet. I don't think I ever will be. I don't know if anybody ever is, except perhaps uh, the wisest, very wisest among us, perhaps the people who become uh, our gurus and our bodhisattvas and our Christ figures. Because, uh, oh, is it such a difficult process to live your life deeply committed to being in the moment. I talk about in my book, my wife's ability to do that. One of the most foundational things I learned from her over the years we were together was the way she went about that, where I would watch her in the morning getting out of bed. Even the way she washed her face, she would pause to feel the warmth of the washcloth around her face and breathe it in. And I knew as I got to know her better and better, as you do living with somebody, I knew what was going through her head. And it wasn't a conscious thought. It was deep enjoyment of the moment. So I started to learn from her about how to do that. I learned from the deaths of my close friends how to do that. I learned from uh, my friends who were much better at that than I was how to do it. And I also learned from nature how to pay attention. I talk about that in the book, too. Um, I tell the reader how in uh, these later years of my life, uh, for the last 10 or more years now, I've been an increasingly avid bird watcher. And the reason I have taken up bird watching is because it's a discipline that requires me increasingly to be in the moment. So when I'm out in the field uh, trying to identify birds, both uh, visually and auditorially, I can only really do that effectively when I am deep in the moment, deeply aware of everything that's going on around me. And and that's the appeal of this discipline. It's like a a practice in the Buddhist sense of the word practice, in the way uh, yogis uh, use the word practice, where you develop a discipline uh, that usually and most successfully includes some physical movement into the way you live and the way you breathe and the way you listen and the way you pay attention to be deeply present. So it's a practice. And um, as I said, I've been doing that one for a little over 10 years now, and I continue to get better and better. There's so much joy in 
the slowing down. That's another, what I called care at the very beginning of the conversation. One needs to move slowly or with care in order to accomplish things. And there's joy in doing that. And we live in a society that is constantly telling us to do the opposite, right? It's telling us to move faster. It's telling us to split and divide our time and, you know, the whole idea of multitasking, right? And again, as someone a novice to the outdoors, one thing that has struck me reading this and and just, I guess, some basic logic is that one cannot and should not multitask when faced with the challenges that you've experienced in your life, whether it's mountaineering or kayaking or any of the other activities that you do. So how do we reinforce the virtue and the joy of slowing down in the manner that you need to do it in a very practical sense in order to accomplish the things that you've accomplished, but also in a more, let's call it metaphysical, spiritual, joyful, whatever language you want to put in there to live that life that's that's more fulfilled. My wife, Jennifer, used to call me a, a monotasker. <laughs> and I seem to have been genetically predisposed to focus on one thing at a time. And when I do uh, more than one thing at a time, I'm not very effective. <laughs> but, you know, I, of course, deeply agree with you that uh, in our lives, uh, surrounded by our built environments that sometimes require us to pay not attention to where we are and what we're doing and what's going on around us, but require us to actually be distracted. We, we seem to have surrounded ourselves with tools that are a distraction. And one needs only go no farther than the phones in all of our pockets as we walk around being distracted by them instead of where we are and what we're doing and who we're talking to and what other things might be going on around us. Certainly one of the appeals of outdoor sports to me as a perhaps a a genetically endowed monotasker was the way that sports, especially, especially something like rock climbing, require you to focus so deeply in the moment of what you're doing to super pay attention to the moves you're making and how to how to put them together and and what your surroundings are and what the risks are maybe around you in a subconscious and conscious way that it you have to be in the moment because if you drift out of the moment and you lose focus and you and you start to drift you can die and you get it into your bones really quickly how to deeply pay attention Now, I'm not suggesting that we all need to go and do rock climbing or even difficult or extreme rock climbing to be able to learn how to do that because there's other ways forward. I'm not really climbing much anymore, but I'm increasingly bird watching, (laughs) maybe a survival instinct now that I'm in my 70s. But as I said a minute ago, that's a great tool for me to learn how to pay attention. And then here's what you get out of paying attention, that if you're, especially in nature, paying attention you get connected because you start to understand more deeply all the life and the life forces that are going on around you. And that leads to a joy uh, of life, of your own life, of the diverse variety of life around you. But it also leads to an both an intellectual and an emotional understanding of how you fit into the web of life. 
as you start to understand that, there's a deep joy that comes from that. And from that joy comes, I think over time, a love for life, for the diversity of life, for the abundance and wonders array of life on earth for its biodiversity. And through that love then becomes the foundation for wanting to protect it. And through that desire to protect it, that leads us to the potential of getting committed as conservationists to protecting what's left of the wild parts of our world. And that can also be a wondrous source of joy. It's summarized in a very succinct way, the most distilled way I've ever run into by the poet Jane Hirschfield, who wrote a poem titled Seven Words, because that's all it has is seven words. It's a Japanese, I think they're called tonku, is that form, if I remember my colleagues who literature class correctly. But in seven words, she said, everything changes. Everything is connected. Pay attention. And that's uh, a very concise summary of the way I want to live my life and what comes from it in seven words. I wish I could be that succinct and clear in 70 words, much less seven words. But, you know, we, we do the best with the, with the talents that we have. And, you know, when you were going through that answer and we were talking so much about paying attention and I'm thinking about the task, the many tasks that you have at hand, one of the things that is so important is clearly communication. When you're on an expedition, you're working with the team, how you communicate, how you relay messages and work together truly as a team can make all the difference in this in the success of an expedition versus one that is less successful. And, you know, I want to go back a little bit to a part that you mentioned in the book where you were talking about after Jonathan's accident, where you and Yvonne, who's the founder of Patagonia, you mentioned that you guys hadn't really talked about the accident. And the talking didn't happen. And you wondered why, maybe he wondered why. And as I read it, I kind of wondered why as well, because it seemed that A, there's an intimacy in the experience. There's an intimacy in the friendship. And then there's the intimacy in communication being so important to the the, the type of activities that you all did together. And this is probably a, a, a bigger meditation than what was even meant in the book, but I'm often puzzled as someone who is male, why men seem to have trouble talking to one another, even when they are deep friends. And so I, you know, it maybe had nothing to do with gender, but I'm just kind of curious. And I, I wrote it down here in my notes. I want to talk about the talking. <laughs> well, um, well, Philip, I think it had everything to do with gender. And it also had to do with the generational differences between my generation and I think the ones that have followed. And we baby boomers, I think we were taught by our parents to value uh, stoicism, to bear up and uh, shut up and not complain. That was some of the values of um, my parents' generation. What my friend Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation because he felt that those values of the generation that preceded me really did get us through conflicts like like the Second World War. And, and he's right. 
without those values, we may never have prevailed and we may have be living even now in a, a more fascistic state. True or not, I think that my generation inherited quite a bit of that. And it probably does in part answer your question about why Vaughn and I and some others of my friends of the of that same age um, didn't talk about these things more openly. And Yvonne and, and Doug are both from uh, older than me by 10 and seven years, respectively. So they were from a generation between um, my own and my parents that more, even more closely inherited some of those values. But then it's a male thing too, I think, to uh, want to uh, show your forbearance uh, to be openly, well, not openly, but um, to be actively stoic. <laughs> and I suppose amongst uh, mountaineers in my generation too, there's a value probably in in that you don't you don't complain about the difficulties that you face on a climb. You just deal with it. I remember uh, some meet, meeting someone a little older than me who had grown up being an explorer in the Antarctic with the British Antarctic Survey. And he used to tell me that when recruits came in and started complaining about getting frostbite and nearly freezing to death and putting up with the rigors of Antarctic travel and exploration, the British would just say, you know, if you can't take a joke, you shouldn't have signed up. And what that really means is that you should shut up and not complain. Yeah. <laughs> so the, all those things mixed into it. But, you know, I think to continue on riffing on a little bit, uh, when I see how my own children uh, talk openly about the struggles in their lives and, and how that has seemed to increase even more with um, the younger generations right now, uh, it's shifting. So had somebody in their 20s now had the experience that Yvonne and I had on that avalanche, I suspect they they would have talked to each other a lot more about it than we did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as, as someone who's been in a lot of, let's call it masculine dominated things, you know, the usual quote unquote things, played a lot of sports growing up and in a fraternity and stuff. I've, I've been wrestling with some of these issues in my own life as to how to maintain friendships and intimacy with my male friends when growing up, though I'm a, I'm a generation, a different generation being Gen X, we didn't talk, so we were moody grunge people, right? <laughs> so we we came at it from perhaps a, a, a different angle. But I think it affords us an opportunity to think about perspective, which is, you know, it, it comes up a lot in the book regarding like what I think of as time, place, and size. There, there's several stories you tell in the book. Again, I'm not trying to give away the whole thing, where you've accomplished these, these feats, you're in these spaces, and you've walked away with a, this is how I was supposed to think about having accomplished this versus how I felt in the moment. And I, I wanted to give you a, a chance to kind of talk about that shift in perspective, the idea of the thing versus the thing itself. That's a good, a good question. It's how you picked up on how I might be thinking I should be thinking about yeah. something versus the way I really... I really was. At the time, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think what has happened over my life actually ladders back to your previous question about the reticence that Yvonne and I had to talk to each other openly about our experiences and how over the course of my life, uh, whether I've learned it from a younger generation who 
I may have been mentoring, but actually ended up mentoring me, that I, I did learn the wisdom of, uh, you know, being, being more open and where you picked up on the book where perhaps I was in a situation where I perhaps wasn't as open as I thought I should be, but yet in my mind, I knew that I could probably benefit from more openness. So, so that, that's a, a part of my own process and good on you for picking up on that. But I do think I've gotten better at it over time. And even the writing of the book's an example of that, because in its first iteration, the book was a collection of the stories of my adventures. One of my daughters had uh, asked me to, to write them out so that, you know, at a minimum, the, the grandkids could hear their grandpapa's stories of his adventures to memorialize them in some way. And when I completed them, there were 50 of them. And it wasn't it was more of a doorstop than a book. It was huge, uh, too big to be published. It required some editing. And, and I was going through the editing process when I uh, sent the book to a close friend of mine who I knew in our youth when we were both in our 20s and we had had a couple of adventures together, including a misadventure where we had been arrested and thrown in jail in Panama. Another story in the book. <laughs> that one did stay in. That's a good one. <laughs> I needed to get her permission to uh, write about that because I was trying to be open and about what was a very intimate experience for, or, or private experience for both of us to talk about openly. Again, this is on, on your topic of being open about it. So I sent the book to her and I was a little nervous whether she would like it or not. And she came back a couple of weeks later and said, well, I like it. And then she said, but tell me, um, who do you want to read this book? And I said, well, I have outdoor adventures, you know, uh, conservation people, environmentalists. I haven't thought about it. Well, what do you want them to learn from it? And uh, I had thought about that even less. <laughs> and she said, well, I think you do need to think about it, Rick, because you've got 50 stories that want to be a memoir, but they're not. There are 50 stories about your adventures that, of course, are integrated by your own life, but yet they don't really connect as deeply and openly as they need to. You need to be more honest and open with yourself and with whoever might want to read about your life. And she said, so tell me this, where do you think you started against where you're at now? What was the main story of your life in your 20s? And what's the main story of your life now that you're in your 70s? And what was the arc between those two things? And <laughs> I said, uh, oh, I need to think about that. Now I need two weeks. So I came back to her and I said, I think when I was in my 20s, it was about the adventures. It was about the people I was going on the adventures with. It was about the places we were having the adventures, the wild, the excitement of going to the wildest corners of the planet. And over the arc of my life, slowly over time, it's become about saving the places where I used to have the adventures. And she said, now take those 50 stories and throw all of them out that don't have anything to do with that arc. Uh, and then take the ones that remain and tell the stories between the stories about who you really are, what's going on in your head, the decisions you've had to make between the adventures, your life as a husband and a father, uh, as a businessman, and send that to me. <laughs> and I took her up on that challenge. 
And it took another year, year and a half, kind of the hardest writing challenge I've ever confronted, to tell you the truth. And the hard part was opening myself up. So maybe that's a, another answer to, to your question. No, that's, that's awesome. And, you know, not having seen the original doorstop, only having seen this version, I could, I could definitely say that the, the intimacy and the honesty shine through. So she said, and you listened. So that was, was really good advice. I want to ask one more before I get to the final two segments of the show. And it has to tie into the conservation piece and it, it ties into time and it, and it, and hopefully a few other things, which is, you know, geological time is happening in human time. This is a, a observation that you also made out in sustainable brands and there's incredible implications to that clearly on the conservation side, on the biodiversity of the planet, our place in it. I do try to make a distinguish between humans and the planet because I'm always like, the planet's been here longer than us. It will be here after us. So I'm not that vain to think that us walking on it matters that much to it, but it matters to us, right? So I want to give you an opportunity um, before, like I said, we get to the final two segments of the show to kind of speak to the realities of the fact that we are experiencing ge vast geological time and by that change in climate crisis in human time and how that has impacted you and your wisdom and everything going forward. Witnessing that impact was one of the biggest influences uh, on that arc of my life that I just described to you and your listeners, where I started in one place and ended up another started with the sports and the places, ended up with the commitment to doing what I could to save the places we were doing those sports. And and one of the main, one of the big reasons for that arc and that shift was bearing witness to seeing the um, denigration of the wild places that I so loved in my youth, where with my own eyes in my own lifetime, I could see human development tramping on places that used to be completely wild. I could see the desertification of grasslands that were rich in my youth and now are wastelands in my old age. Uh, most profoundly, perhaps, I could see the melting and the retreat of ice where I've been able to witness and bear witness to glaciers that were extensive and robust and in the face of climate change have retreated to just be a mere remnant of what they used to be. Now, you mentioned geologic time and uh, the shift of glaciers and the shift in entire ecosystems from lushness to deserts is often in the past been measured in geologic time, but now those changes are happening, as you said, in human time. And seeing that and then understanding it was a profound impact on me. And as I said, uh, it's one of the core reasons that I want to use whatever time I have left, whatever tools are in my box to do what I can with the skills I own to try to make a small difference. Because I now deeply understand that without the preservation of nature, that we ourselves are likely to go extinct along with our brethren wildlife. Uh, I deeply understand the interconnection of uh, our lives uh, to 
the wild part of this world and how the two so integrally depend on each other. Sometimes it astounds me how uh, business people, to be specific, don't understand that. They fail to see the most fundamental connection between their businesses and the health of the planet. When to me and Yvonne and Doug and my other close friends, it's just so patently obvious where it doesn't seem that you need an MBA to know that your business depends on a healthy planet. It depends on having healthy resources, most fundamentally clean air and clean water. And that most fundamentally without a healthy planet with those healthy resources, there can be no healthy societies. And if there are no healthy societies, how in the world are ever going to have healthy markets? As Yvonne's mentor, David Brower, told him, uh, one of the early presidents of the Sierra Club and a, a leader in conservation and environmental thinking, David said, remember, there is no business on a dead planet. So we all need to listen to David. Whether we're in business or not, we all need to understand that if we don't do something about the twin crises of the loss of biodiversity, the extinction crises, and the climate crises, that we're very likely to go over the cliff along with our brethren wildlife. And it's also important for all of us to understand, as I have principally from my time in nature, that the extinction crisis and the climate crisis are not the cause, they're the symptoms. And I've deeply understood over my time in nature, overseeing what our species does to nature, to understand that the real cause of our crises, of our dilemmas, of our predicament, is that there are too many of us using too much stuff. There are too many people using the planet's limited resources beyond what the planet can now replenish on an annual or even long-term basis. And that is the cause of the problem. So we have to address the cause. Now, I'm not suggesting that we have to figure out how to diminish our population radically because I'm not sure we're going to do that. Although it's interesting and fascinating to see the challenges and the crises become more evident in any society. And especially if that society allows their women to be educated, those women's, the, the population, or the rate of replenishment, the birth rate starts to go down, a fascinating trend. But what we can really address is diminish, is reducing the footprint that we have on the planet from our use of goods and services. Uh, you mentioned before in the introduction that I co-founded that Sustainable Apparel Coalition. I'm the, the founding chair of that group. And we've developed uh, the tools called the Higgs suite of tools that measure the footprint of companies in the apparel and textile and footwear sectors. Uh, and through that measurement, we then are introducing through our trade organization management tools that with as the old saw goes, you can only manage what you measure. And so now we're measuring and we're managing. And, and the companies involved in this, which, by the way, collectively are over, produce over half of all apparel and footwear on planet Earth in any given year. So we've scaled it. Uh, that they're year over year starting to show reductions in their footprint. So what started as a hypothesis is actually starting to be proven uh, to work. So, so we can do this. We can collectively figure out how to better manage the impact of the goods and services we use, because that's the problem. Absolutely. And the result, 
the result of that problem, to repeat it one more time, the two big results of that problem are the twin crises of the climate and extinction. Absolutely. I've, I've, I was having a conversation this morning, and within that conversation, we were kind of reflecting on the holidays and sustainability, and I was like, got to stop consuming, you know, got to stop buying junk and crap and, and put the brakes on that, right? That means a lot. Well, consume more and not just reducing consumption is super important. You got to incorporate that, but consuming the right stuff and using the right services and being conscious about the impact of your choices, that is super important. And we can all learn how to do that. Absolutely. It's going to take a human effort, but that's what we're here for, right? Like it's, it's, there's, there's nothing more critical. Um, Cause as you said, you can't do business on a dead planet. That is clear. <laughs> Despite it should be, yeah, it should be. Despite others feeling that they can rush to others, I'm like, let's just deal with the one we have, and <laughs> let us not fall into the incredible delusion. And it's not an illu- illusion; it's a delusion. Yeah, to think that we can just occupy Mars and ab- abandon our home planet. I mean, that is so just profoundly absurd. absurd and simplistic (laughs) that I can't even believe those guys like Musk are even saying something like that. I mean, they're just, they're brilliant businessmen. The guy built this electric car company, certainly to be admired, but yet how can he be so profoundly delusional as to actually believe something like that? And that other friend of his, or the guy, you know, Bezos. Yeah. I can't believe those guys. I wish I could get in front of them sometimes because I would look them in the face and I say, you know, you got to get out in nature a little bit. You've got to take home the lessons from the wild part of the world and understand them a little bit more. Because if you go out there and do that and you start to understand how this planet works, you're going to quickly realize that we, if we don't clean up our act, are going to turn Earth into Mars. But if you think you're going to turn Mars into Earth, you are completely delusional. Yeah. It's an insane proposition. And, you know, I, I'm not going to derail this with one of my usual Bezos and, and Musk rants. Again, people people who listen to the show know how I feel about these people. It's to think that, you know, even on a very simple basis, and I'm very, I'm simplifying it. It's when we go into space, we transport everything we need from this planet in order to survive. We take oxygen, we take what water we can, and the idea that we're going to go some other place and and replicate this in any way, shape, or form is complete insanity. (laughs) My mentor, Doug Tompkins, um, who I've mentioned before in our talk together here, Philip, he, as some of your listeners know, founded the North Face and sold that to with his wife, co-found Esprit. He was an enormously successful businessman, but he understood the context of business in the context of the health of the planet better than any single human being I've ever run into. What I just told you about the twin causes of the, those are all things I learned from Doug. And, and he was a deep thinker on this, but I remember when we landed on the moon, you know, in the late sixties and everybody celebrated in the way that celebrated the magic of human technology to actually put a human being on the moon. But then Doug in his office put a poster up on his wall and it had a, this is pre Photoshop. So I don't know how they did this, but it had Buzz Armstrong or whoever it was 
you know, getting out of the lunar module and putting the first step, uh, Neil Armstrong, putting the first step onto the moon, you know, with his boot about to land. And right under his boot was a big pile of dog shit. And <laughs> to me, it completely represented, you know, what Doug's understanding was about the absurdity of what we were doing, you know, compared to what where we should be expending our resources. Absolutely. I, I got to find that poster. That sounds amazing. <laughs> and that's a perfect summation. I want to get us to Off the Dome, which are just some rapid fire questions. First thing that comes to mind. So I'm ready to rock. You mentioned that you have a big family. It's in the book. You mentioned your grandkids even in this conversation. What is one thing that even with all your stories and the books and things you shared, what is one thing that even your grandkids don't know about your adventures? <laughs> They're going to be finding it out here for the first time. There were times when I really got scared. <laughs> <laughs> so fright was a constant companion. <laughs> and, and fear of death. Yeah, I had to learn to overcome that. If you can give advice to your younger self, and it seems like this whole book is almost a meditation to that, what would be the one thing that you would want to tell your younger self if you could? Pay attention and do it the earliest age possible. And my last one for Off the Dome is, what is the biggest but yet most common misperception that people have about mountain climbing and mountaineering? It's, it's often used in metaphors and in stories by people who've never done it. And so what have you found to be one of the most common misperceptions about what it's truly like to be a mountaineer of your, of your caliber and achievement? The best practitioners of the sport learn that it's not about the summit, but it's about the footsteps it takes to get there. I couldn't, I couldn't have said that any better. That's amazing. <laughs> so the final segment of the show before we, we say goodbye is called The Drop. And The Drop is just an opportunity for us to share anything at all that we think our listeners might enjoy and want to engage with. Um, I have a drop ready to go. So I'll jump in there first with mine. Um, I've only watched part one of this but I will be watching the other two parts. And it's the Beatles, the new Beatles documentary that was released on Disney+. Plus. I know my listeners are all over the world, so they might not have access to Disney+. Plus, But wherever they can find the streaming, they should definitely engage with the new Beatles documentary called Get Back. I've been talking about it since I watched the first part. Admittedly, I'm a huge Beatles fan. If you are not a huge Beatles fan, it might be a long watch because there's three parts. It's probably like, six hours total, maybe more, of the Beatles in the studio re recording what will become their final album. But I think even if you're not a Beatles fan, there's a lot to be learned about friendship, ego, um, the process, the creative process, the ability to navigate people. There's just a lot going on. And I found in the quieter moments of this documentary, even again as a fan, I discovered many new things and I've been kind of noodling on it since I watched it. So my drop is the Get Back Beatles documentary on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> so what's your drop for us? And it could, like I said, it could be anything at all. It doesn't have to be particularly deep. Well, I've actually got a pretty deep one that I decided recently to go back into a, a fascination as a young adult with the Greek and Roman philosophers. And so I've been rereading Seneca his letters on ethics. And I know that sounds kind of boring and, and a lot of it is, but I'm starting to 
pull out from that an understanding that some of those guys two and 3,000 years ago were wrestling with the same thing as I've confronted in my life. And they come up with some pretty good ideas about how to deal with it. That's a perfect one. The classics are called classics for a reason, right? <laughs> they are. <laughs> you know, so so Rick, I, I promise you 45 minutes. We went longer, but we, we went into some really interesting places. And like I said, this book has been such a profound meditation on so many things that I think are really important in life. And it truly is exemplifies a, a life well lived. And I can't thank you enough for joining me on, on the deep dive. This has been um, one of my favorite conversations and I appreciate you being on the show with me. Well, listen, as I said at the beginning, the pleasure is mine. I really mean that. I enjoy it too. Thank you so much. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.